Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Uh, turn your, in your Bibles, as Jessica just pointed out, to the book of 1 Samuel. If uh, you didn't bring a Bible with you, there should be a white paperback Bible in one of the seats in front of you. You can turn to page 132 and you'll find the book of 1 Samuel will be in chapter 8 today. A couple things I want to mention here before we get started. Um, Very important event coming up here soon in the life of our church and that is our annual meeting which will be on January 28th. My clicker does not seem to be, there we go, okay. Uh, January 28th, whoops, okay, there we go. Um, 7 p.m. here in the sanctuary, annual congregational meeting where we do the business of the church. And everybody invited, members in particular, strongly encouraged to come. Uh, one of the things that we do at the annual meeting, of course, we'll hear about the 2019 budget, but um, we will also um, cast votes for officer candidates. So these individuals have gone through training and have been approved by the elders of the church to stand for the office of deacon and elder. T.J. Dudley and Zach Whitman for the office of deacon. Bob Darby, (coughs) David Lowry, and Kurt Whitman for the office of elder. So many of you know these guys already. If you're a member of the church and you don't know these guys, you should take an opportunity to try to get to know them between now and January 28th because you'll be called upon to cast your vote Uh, for these men to serve in these offices and we're very grateful for them and for their willingness uh, to serve. So they will come on in addition to the men already serving as uh, deacons and elders. So January 28th, annual meeting. Put it on your calendar. Um, As Larry mentioned, um, there's been some things going on in China, Chengdu, China. Uh, Before I get to that, I want to let you know that Virginia Yip, who is a missionary that this church supports, uh, my translator in Chengdu, she's going to be here in January for about a week, I think the week of the 11th or 12th, I think, and um, she would love to take some time to get to know all of you better. She told me that's really what she wants to do, is kind of get connected to the congregation. So if you want to have Virginia over to your house for dinner, Um, We have a sign-up sheet at the welcome booth, and you can put your name down there to get to know her. And she's uh, a a joy and a delight to be with and can tell you everything you want to know about the church in China. So I would encourage you to take advantage of that. Um, Virginia was in Chengdu. She's now in Shanghai, actually, but um, you have probably heard about what's going on in Chengdu. As Larry mentioned, again, the authorities and police have been cracking down on Christians there, particularly in a church called Early Rain, which is kind of the the main church planting church there in uh, Chengdu. So last weekend there was a raid on the church, about 100 people have been arrested. Some of those have been released, but some of them are still retained, uh, detained. Um, the pastor is, is one of them. And um, there was a lot of concern about what would happen today. Now China is about 13 hours ahead of us, so it's Sunday night now in Chengdu, China. So about 12 hours ago, or so they were gathering for worship. And so the reports I heard said that those who came to early rain to worship this morning found the church locked up and authorities there keeping people away. And uh, about 30 people were arrested, 30 additional people arrested. Um, Some homes of people who are part of early rain, the authorities know who they are. And so some of those homes have been under surveillance. Some of those homes have been guarded by police so that the people can't even get out of their homes to go to church. Um, 
those who were able to get out and were not arrested have chosen to just gather publicly outdoors and have just worshiped outside. And it's about the same there as it is here weather-wise, so it's cold, uh, but they're, they're out there worshiping. So um, I've written a blog about what's going on there, and so I would recommend that you read that. There's some stories about what has been happening as well as a very important letter written by the, ch- the, the pastor of the church, the one who is still detained. Uh, highly recommend that you read that. Uh, very important statement there about how to face and deal with persecution and hostility. So I've got a link to that letter <coughs> in my blog. So just go to the New Life website and you'll see blog. You can click on that and find that. So very troubling situation there. We need to keep praying for our brothers and, and sisters there. Um, some people in the class that I taught are among those who have been arrested. So um, this has been kind of a personal thing for me. And uh, I'm grateful that the ones that I know have been released. But some of them have been kicked out of Chengdu and told not to return. So that means there's opportunities for seminary education anyway in, in Chengdu is, is pretty much over. Their ID cards have been confiscated, so that limits their ability to travel and move around and uh, pursue opportunities that might otherwise be available to them. So uh, a pretty high price being paid by our brothers and sisters in in Chengdu. What we're seeing there is, uh, of course, an an abuse of power, an an abuse of governmental power. We're seeing uh, leadership acting oppressively toward the church. And um, we should just kind of pause and keep things in balance here because the scriptures would tell us that there is a proper place for the role of government. You know, Romans 13 tells us that the governing authorities have been instituted by God and we are to be submissive to those. Um, but sometimes that authority can be abused. And that's what's happening in, in Chengdu. And there is a time for civil disobedience. There is a time when we don't do what the government tells us what to do. Um, But there's also another problem that's going to lead us into our passage here today in 1 Samuel chapter 8. There's a problem with the abuse of leadership. There's also a problem with the absence of leadership. And that actually is the situation that Israel found themselves in the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, You might remember the very end of... um, the book of Judges, by the way, we're in a sermon series called Route 66. We're going through the Bible one book at a time, one sermon per Bible book, and we've reached the book of 1 Samuel. That means we are in Judges just a few weeks ago, and the very end of the book of Judges reads like this, the last verse. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. So there was really no established government, no authority, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so there's certainly a problem with governmental overreach, there's also a problem when you have no government at all or no clear, godly, decent leadership. And that was the problem in Israel in the time of the judges and in the time of the book of Ruth, which was the last book that we considered here. Ruth begins by saying, in the time of the judges. So Ruth is in the time of the judges. The book of 1 Samuel is a transitionary time in the nation of Israel. It's the time where the nation of Israel is being moved from this period of the judges to uh, the time of the monarchy. So particularly in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, that's the central chapter that has to do with this very important transition in the life of the history of Israel. The monarchy is the time where Israel comes under the rule of kings. 
And that's going to go on for a long, long time. And the books that we're about to examine in the coming weeks and months will have to do with the kingship in Israel. Now, this idea of kingship might be kind of hard for us as Americans because, you know, we don't have a king. Some people would say our current president thinks he's a king, but, but we don't have a king. We call him a president. We're, we're used to having a president, not a king. And so this whole idea of a king might sound a, a little strange, but the fact is, is that all of us do long for good, godly, and proper leadership. All of us have a desire and a need for a good king in our lives. I mean, somebody who is going to protect us, someone who's going to bring about justice, somebody who can speak with moral authority. We, we need that, and we want that. We don't want a dictator, someone who rules tyrannically, but we do want a good king, and that's recognized here in the book of First Samuel. The problem that we're going to find here is that even though the people want a king, and to desire a king is a good thing, and it's something that we all want, the problem in the nation of Israel is that they wanted a king for the wrong reasons. And that can get into our own hearts. Sometimes we look to the kings and leaders in our lives for the wrong reasons. We put too much hope in them. We expect them to do things they're not called to do. And that's what we're going to see here in this particular chapter of 1 Samuel chapter 8. So some background information about 1 Samuel. We don't know the author of this book, probably written by a number of people, maybe compiled into this current form by somebody else. Scholars don't know. Written about a thousand years before the coming of Christ. Significant events, there are many. The life of Samuel, chapters 1 through 7, we're not covering that, beginning here today with chapter 8. Uh, the uh, reign of Saul, the first king, <clears throat> Story of David and Goliath, chapter 17, one of the most famous stories in the Bible. Um, David and Jonathan, the great friendship there, and the latter chapters of the book have to do with David fleeing um, a tyrannical king called Saul. So, chapter 8 is the chapter we're going to read today. If you want to stand for the reading of God's word, this is where Israel decides they need a king. And so they make this demand to God. 1 Samuel 8, verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt even to this day forsaking me and serving other gods so they also so they are also doing to you now then obey their voice only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them so Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him he said this these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you he will take your sons and appoint them 
to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. God, please open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So, Samuel's been a leader of the people of Israel, and now Israel has come to this place where they have demanded this king. And we're going to see here three things that um, raise questions, should raise questions in our minds about the reason that Israel wants a king. And the first reason is this, they did not want to trust God as their king. It's the, the, the first main problem, main issue here. They don't want to trust God as their king. So here's how the story starts. First few verses in, in chapter 8, we learn that Samuel was old. The people uh, are pretty blunt about that with Samuel. Samuel, you're old, and uh, we're a little concerned about your ability to continue leading us. And they mention also that, Samuel, you've got these sons, and so the expectation is maybe these sons will take over for Samuel, but the people point out that these sons are not godly men. They take bribes, they pervert justice at the end of verse three. And so basically the people are saying, Samuel, we don't want you any longer, and we don't want your sons to rule over us. And so in verse five, we see this demand. We want a king, a point for us, a king. Now, uh, this should strike us as as kind of a, a shocking request, actually, because recall that Israel has been a theocracy up to this point. I mentioned this several sermons ago, that Israel was a very unique nation in the history of the world. It functioned as a theocracy. That is, God ruled over Israel directly. God was the one who fought their battles and took care of them, and we see repeated examples of how he's done that. In fact, in just chapter 7 of 1 Samuel, we see that God delivered Israel from the Philistines. And of course, we remember back to the Exodus that God delivered Israel from Egypt. So over and over again, God has fought their battles and he has delivered them. And yet, the people come and they say to Samuel, we want a king. We want a human king here. And God answers that to Samuel by saying, look Samuel, you really probably shouldn't take this so personally. Um, This is not their rejection of you, but in verse seven, God says, 
The one they're rejecting is me. They're rejecting me. They're rejecting God. They don't want me, their God, their creator, to fight their battles and to reign over them. Now, it's important to point out here that there is nothing wrong with having a human king. And in fact, it seems that the Old Testament anticipated that there would be a king in Israel one day because in Deuteronomy chapter 17, God gives all these instructions to Israel about how their king should function. And so there was an expectation of human kingship. The problem here is, is kind of a subtle problem, but it's very significant. The problem here is, is not that the people want a king who would rule over them under God. The problem here is that the people want a king instead of God. They don't want to trust God anymore, a God they can't see. They want something visible. They want something touchable that they can depend upon. And so they reject God as their king. God realizes this and says it very explicitly here in verse 7. So what we have here is um, a, a very interesting parallel, I think, to some modern-day governments. Uh, if we think of communism, as we're thinking about Chengdu, China, and what's going on there, um, you know, here's one way that we can describe the difference between the Bible's view of government and the communist view of government. The Bible would say that the state or a king or the government is, is a temporal institution intended to serve man and women who are eternal creatures. But the communist view of things say, no, man is temporal, there is no afterlife, and man and woman are meant to serve the state which is eternal. The communist system is very similar actually to what, I'm not saying that what the people here in 1 Samuel 8 are demanding is, is a communist government, but there are similarities there. That they don't want God as their king, they want a government to rule over them, a government that they can depend upon. And, and that's the way communism works. Now, if you think I'm pushing it a little bit, I, I found this example um, of an article that was presented in a newspaper that was written by the French Communist Party back in the 1950s when Joseph Stalin was still alive. And here's what it said. French Communist Party, they're talking about Joseph Stalin, okay, leader of Russia later, notorious dictator, to Stalin we shall remain faithful forevermore. Eternal glory to the great Stalin, whose masterly and imperishable scientific work shall help us to rally the majority of humanity. I mean, doesn't that sound like a religious statement? Doesn't that sound like an act of worship? We are going to be faithful to you. O oh, Stalin, eternal glory to the great Stalin. They're, they're envisioning an eternal state that is going to somehow rally the majority of humanity and bring in a kind of salvation. And this is the way it's always been throughout history. There is a tendency for people to look to the state or to look to a king or to look to a government to take the place of God. And that is precisely what is happening here in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And, you know, it, it, it happens in our hearts and minds even today, whether you live in a communist country or not. I mean, there are people, I'm not saying that 
necessarily applies here, I don't know, but I think there are people who are placing their hope in Donald Trump. They want Donald Trump to make America great again because they think if America is made great again, the world will be saved. That's hoping in a government. That's hoping, hoping in a king, in a leader for salvation. And there are others who will come along and say, no, it's the exact opposite. What we're waiting for is the person who's going to come in and take Donald Trump's place. And that's the person who's going to fix all the damage. And that's the person who is going to save the world. We all have this tendency to, to look at some kind of human institution or person to come in and rescue us. But here's what the scriptures tell us. Psalm 146, put not your trust in princes. And I've added in parentheses there, or kings or presidents. Do not trust in princes, kings or presidents, and a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, when he dies, he returns to the earth. And on that very day, his plans perish. Why are you trusting in human leaders who are one day going to die and everything that they had hoped to do is going to be finished? And the implication here is that what we need is a king who won't die, who won't return to the earth. What we need is a king whose plans are eternal. That's the king we want. That's the king that we need. And that's the king that the people of Israel have lost sight of. So that's the first thing. The first problem in this request for a king from Israel. But here's the second one. These people did not want to be different than the world. When they asked for a king, in their hearts was this desire not to be different from the world. So let, let me show you this. Now, remember that Israel was called by God for a specific purpose, and that is that Israel was called to be God's representative to the world. Israel was to be a beacon of hope to a broken down, sinful, painful world. In Israel was to be a light shining out, showing everybody that there is a different way to live. Israel was to show an alternative to the world, that there is hope. And an example of that would be here in Deuteronomy. Here's God speaking to Israel. and He says, Israel, keep my commands. Keep God's commands. Do them. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, in the sight of the world, in the spite of the nations who are observing. Who, when they hear all of these statutes and these rules and these laws that I've told you about how to live, they're going to say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. That the nation would look at Israel and say, there is something special about the people of God there. They are living and flourishing in a way that is remarkable, and I want a piece of that. That was the reason that Israel was called, one of the reasons that Israel was called uh, into formation by, by God. And so it should shock us a little bit when we read in verse 5 the reason why Israel wants a king. You see it at the end of verse 5. Appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. It's like, we don't want to be different. We don't want to be a light to the world. We don't want to be set apart from the nation, nations. We, we want to be like them. It, it's said again, it must be important, it's repeated um, later in verse 19 and 20. 
Um, they say, we want to be like all the nations, it says, verse 20, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. We don't want God fighting our battles. We want to judge a, a king fighting our battles because when we look out and see all the nations, we see that they have kings that fight their battles and we want to be exactly like them. Now, we should pause just a second to acknowledge that, that this is understandable in, in one sense and that is because we all kind of want to blend in, I think. I mean, there are some exceptions, but, but most of us really long for acceptance. Most of us want to feel that we fit. Most of us um, don't want to appear weird or, or out of place. And, and we get uncomfortable when that happens. So like as an example, maybe you've been in an audience before where you're watching a program and the program ends and then you see some people beginning to stand in the front and, and then you see other people stand and you see this you know, rising bodies standing coming all the way back and, and you don't want to stand because maybe you weren't that impressed with the program or you're tired and you don't want to get up but you see everybody stand and you know that feeling, right? You feel that pressure. You're going to have to stand. You can't just sit there. Now, of course, there's exceptions, and some people would do that, but most of us, I think, we get up, we stand, right? Because we don't want to feel different. We don't want to feel out of place. It's the, it's the power of the pressure of a crowd. When the crowd speaks and when the crowd moves in one direction, it is very hard for us to not want to go with the crowd. And what God is saying here is that the problem is that you people, Israel, want to go with the crowd. You don't want to stand out. You don't want to be different. It says in Leviticus 19, God says to his people, I am holy, therefore, Israel, you must be holy, which is essentially the same as saying, Israel, you must be different. You must be distinct. Your lives must not look like the lives of the world. Friends, if somebody lived in your house for several months, would they notice anything different about your lifestyle, your behavior, your words, your practices? Would they notice anything different in the way you live than if they lived in the house of the unbeliever down the road? Would they notice anything? Is there anything different? about your lifestyle that there ought to be. I'm reading a book by a guy named Mark Sayers. <clears throat> the book is called Disappearing Church. And what Sayers comments on is, is this. He says, the problem with the church in this day and age is that we've been trying too hard to be relevant. I mean, the church has been scrambling for decades. Anytime it seems like the world comes up with some kind of new idea or some new trendy thing, it's like the church wants to get on board as well and do the same thing. And we're fighting constantly to be relevant, whether it be the seeker-sensitive church or the emerging church or the new reformed church and all of the ideas we put into place to try to get the world to look at us and say, you know, you guys aren't so bad after all. We're, we're looking for relevance. What Mark Sayers says is, that's been our problem. 
Because every time we try to be relevant, we kind of catch up with the world, but then the world is on to something else, and then we're irrelevant again. And then we try to match what they're doing at that time, and by the time we're able to mimic that, they're on to something else, and again, we're irrelevant. And now decades have passed, and the church is still irrelevant in the eyes of the world. What Mark Sayer says is, what we need is not relevance, but resilience. We need resilient Christians. We need Christians ready to dig in in devotion to Christ, whatever that requires, no matter how strange or weird that might make us look in the eyes of the culture. This is what Mark Sayers says. What if our attempts at relevance actually limit our ministry potential? What if our increasing strangeness to Western culture is actually to our advantage? What if the fact that you can no longer be warmly embraced in the contemporary culture is actually the best thing that has happened to us? I mean, some of us are very alarmed about our increasing marginalization as a church. Maybe it's the best thing that ever happened to us. Are you ready to be called strange? You ready to be strange for Jesus? (laughs) That's partially what we're being called to here in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Are you willing to be different? I saw an example of this, again, looking at the situation in Chengdu. Um, a couple people I've been following who have been giving reports, and I, I heard the story of a, a mother, <clears throat> and she was talking to her daughter, and uh, this was in anticipation of today's worship services at Early Rain, and um, the mother said to her daughter, she said, there's two options here. She said, we can either go to church on Sunday and likely be taken away, or we cannot go to church and we won't be taken away. What would you like? And she's asking her, her daughter, this little girl, and the little girl says, Mommy, you have to go to church. <laughs> and, and they went to church. And so I, I don't know what's happened to them, but that's an example of, you know, look, I, I'm gonna be willing to stand out no matter what the cost. I mean, sometimes for us, the cost is being labeled weird or different or strange or backwards or whatever it is that we're going to be called as Christians. That isn't anything like being put in jail, you know? I mean, is it really so bad that the world would think you're weird and strange and different and odd? Is that really so bad? So how can you do this? I mean, there are actually simple ways. I mean, how how do you stand out? How, How can you be distinctive? You know, rejecting the temptation to sleep in on Sunday mornings and making sure you're here, that's, that's one way. I mean, most of the world, you know, Sunday's a rest day. It's time to take it easy. Why would you get up and come to church on Sunday morning unless you're committed to being distinct, to being the people of God in, in the world? Rejecting the pressures of the sexual revolution where we're constantly hearing what we have to now believe about transgenderism or homosexuality or whatever. I mean, are you ready to to resist that pressure and to be called weird and strange? Single people, are are you ready to, to commit to being a virgin until you're married? Talk about being strange and weird in this day and age. You're gonna be called weird and strange. But what a wonderful testimony to the world for you to follow Christ and being distinct. How about committing to regular fasting in your life? Where you give yourself to long periods of time where you're you're not eating. 
I mean, it's a spiritual discipline that we are called to do. How about making sure that whenever you get a paycheck, the first 10% goes to your church? Always. That's a good way to be distinctive. That's a good way to be different. The world doesn't think that way. The world says, my money is my money, and I make my money so I can do what I want, and so I can have a nice, healthy, strong retirement nest set aside so that I can live a comfortable life. That's what Americans do. But God's people say, we're called to something different. We live differently. We are to be distinct. The people of Israel didn't want that. They didn't want to be different from the world, and that was one of the poor motivations of their request for the king. Last thing, the last thing we see is this. They also did not want to listen to God's word. They didn't want to listen to what God had to say. So here's how we see this. The people make this request for a king. And in verse 9, it might kind of sound odd, but God says, obey their voice. Kind of an odd phrase, right? God telling Samuel to obey the people, but that's what he's saying. Obey their voice. In other words, do what they want. He repeats it in verse 22, obey their voice. Give them their king is what God says. But God says, but before that, I want you to tell them a few things about what it's going to be like to have a king. And so he, he speaks to Samuel. Now, now, Samuel was the last of the judges. So again, this is the transition, right, from the period of the judges to the period of the kings. Samuel's the last judge, and we're about to see the very first king. But Samuel was a prophet also. And a prophet is one who spoke to the people on God's behalf. And so God gives Samuel these words. And if you look at verse 10, you'll see Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people. So here's Samuel speaking God's, this is not just Samuel's word, that's the point I'm making. It's God's word through Samuel. And he says to them, starting in verse 11, here's what's going to happen. You're going to get this king, and you know what this king's going to do? He's going to take your sons, and he's going to appoint them to chariots. He's going to enlist them in his army. And he's going to appoint commanders of thousands in verse 12, and make his weapons and his war implements. And then in verse 13, he's not only going to take your sons, he's going to take your daughters for himself. And then in verse 14, he's going to take the best of your fields, your property, your wealth. He's going to take that from you. Verse 15, he's going to take a tenth of your grain, your harvest. He's going to take that. Verse 16, he's going to take your servants to serve him. And in verse 17, he's going to take a tenth of your flocks and he is going to make you into his slaves. I mean, hopefully you've noticed the repetition there. What's the king going to do? He's going to take and take and take and take from you. God's word, speaking to the people, clear as day. And what do the people say? No. Verse 19, I mean, they couldn't be any more blunt, could they? Look at verse 19. They said no. They refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They wanted what they wanted. They wanted their idol. They wanted their God substitute. They wanted this new thing that they thought was going to save them, and nothing was going to stop them from getting it. And man, that's the way we 
are often, isn't it, with our idols? I mean, sometimes we will do anything to get our idols, even if it means it's gonna destroy ourselves. And that's what these people are doing. No, we, we want this king. And so the king that God gives them, at the end of the chapter, go and give them their king. The king they get is a guy named Saul, and we'll find out that Saul is a ruthless, brutal, self-centered, megamaniacal, ungodly leader. It maybe even turns out worse than what is expected. And I think the principle here is this, friends. You've got to be careful what you ask for. Be careful what you ask for. It's not always good, friends, to get what you want. The people wanted what they wanted and they got what they wanted and it turned out very badly. Of course, there are legitimate things for us to want and very often God gives us what we want, but sometimes we don't get what we want and sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes God's mercies are hidden in the things that he has withheld from us. And as an act of judgment, which we see repeated in Romans 1 later, God just says, look, these people want it that badly. All right, I'm going to give it to them. And the king comes, and the worst consequences become a reality for the people of God. So they didn't want to listen to God's word. And these are the three things. They want a king, yes, but they don't want God as their king. They don't want to be different from the world and they don't want to listen to God's word. So here's what happens. God gives them their king, and it begins this long line of kings, starting with Saul, and after Saul comes David, and after David comes Solomon, and we have many more kings in a long line of kings um, described in the Old Testament, and that long line of kings continues until someone finally comes along, and you remember from the Christmas story, the wise men, they come and they call this man the king of the Jews. And this king of the Jews begins to live on this earth and as he begins his ministry, he declares to his people, my kingdom is not of this world, which is a way for him to say, my kingdom is not like that of the nations. He's saying, I am a king who's different. I am a king who is distinct. I am the king who maybe you think you don't want me, but you need me. He's the king you might not think you want, but the king that you need. And he says, here's what makes me different, is I come and I don't take and take and take. I give and I give and I give. He's a king who comes and says, I give rest for the weary. He's a king who comes and says, I'm not here to be served, I'm here to serve. He's a king who comes to give his blood, a king who comes to give his life, to give his life, to lay it down for you and for me. Jesus Christ is his name. The king of Jews, the king of kings, we call him now on this side of the resurrection. And the call to you today is to believe in him as your savior, to submit to him as your king, and to prepare to meet him at this table. And that's what we're about to pray, prepare to do.
So let's pray. Our Father, we do um, praise you that you are our king, that you reign, that you rule, that you are sovereign, and that you are deserving of our submission and adoration. And we thank you that you are not just a king who demands obedience, but a king who in love has died for sinners, formerly your enemies, to make us your friends. Thank you for the goodness of this gospel message in Jesus' name. Amen.